Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where each week we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is the awesome Jane Sunley, founder and CEO of Purple Cubed and Proper People Person. Coming up on today's show... Jane asks some inappropriate questions. If the interviewer is a lady, is it okay to give her a kiss? Phil describes what carnage might look like. Lots of serious hospitalitarians letting their hair down. And Jane sets up her funny story perfectly. I've got a bit of a naughty one so you can decide whether you edit it out or not. All that and a whole lot more as Jane chats us through her story and journey to date. Despite her success, Jane remains as approachable and open as ever and her journey is an absolute triumph from start to finish, rammed full of stories and some brilliant learning. All told with a wonderful mix of humour and humility. And don't worry, we didn't edit her naughty story. We've got more awesome stories each week, so please don't forget to give us a like, share and review on your podcast platform of choice. It really makes a big difference. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the next episode of Hospitality Meets with me, your host, Phil Street. Today, we're chatting to someone who kind of bridges the gap, really, between sectors within the industry, and that's being someone who is very much recognised as a people specialist. Known by pretty much everyone under the sun, I think. Yeah. That's not it's not a pun, by the way, on your name. She's uh, a speaker, a best-selling author, and founder and CEO of that awesome lot over at the at Purple Cubed. I am, of course, talking about the wonderful Jane Sunley. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, and for such a lovely introduction. Was it accurate? I, I, do you know, I, I, I kind of know what you do, but I kind of don't know what you do. Uh, yeah, a lot of people say that. Yeah, it was accurate, but who knows what Purple Cube does until I tell you, you know. And this, yeah. How are you anyway? Yeah, I'm, I'm great, thank you. Greetings from Los Angeles here this morning. I was going to say, yeah, you're, you're, this is, this is quite, uh, this is probably a first for the show in a few respects. One, you're doing this on your spare time and I'm forever grateful for that, but your spare time is on the other side of the planet. So yeah, whatever works, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Fabulous. Well, uh, let's just get stuck in then. Take us all the way back. I can imagine, I mean, you've been a, the, the founder of this wonderful business for quite a number of years. How many years now? 21 this September. Is it really? Mm. Right. So, but I'm guessing you didn't, graduate straight out of university and go I'm going to found a company doing that yeah. or whatever it is that you did so take us all the way back to the beginning and, and how did you kind of get in or associated with hospitality in the first place yeah it's a, it's a funny one really because I suppose I used to, I remember sitting on a bench at a bus stop with my friend when I was about 10 going oh, there must be a better place for us than this and I kept right. thinking, I don't, because I grew up in quite a grotty bit of North Manchester and never, you know, I'd never do that down because it was great. Um, but I always thought, what am I doing here? How did I get born here? I should have been doing something else. And I never knew how I was going to change that until I went into town one day with my mom and we stood outside the Midland Hotel in Manchester and I saw these quite wealthy looking people wandering in and out. And I thought, do you know what? If I go and work in a place like that, then maybe... I can go and, you know, travel and move away from this place and all the rest of it. So I just yep. always had in my head that hospitality was kind of a quite way, I mean, it's a very away from motivation to, to get away from where I was really. And then I, I won a scholarship to a really good girls school when I was 11 and went to this school where they wanted you to, you know, be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. 
and right, yeah. all the rest of it and everybody stayed on and did A levels and there was me and one other girl the other scholarship girl actually who um at 16 said we've had enough of this I mean you know great school and taught me everything and you know that was great but it was very regimented and I'm not really that person and I was always getting into trouble for you know smoking and getting up to naughtiness and stuff so I just thought nothing's really changed Jane (laughs) I don't smoke though (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so when I was 16 I sort of marched off and said I'm going to leave now and go to catering college college and of course they were absolutely horrified because in those days they sort of you into catering if you didn't really know what you wanted to do with yourself and I said I really just want to do catering because I want to go into hospitality because I want to work in a big hotel um so I got into you know all sorts of teachers trying to talk me out of it and everybody being terribly disappointed and they said to me you know if you do this now you've blown your chance and you're never going to get anywhere which was very helpful of them I'm sure but you know for someone like me yeah but it made me go do you know what I'm just going to prove you wrong so I went off to right. do my OND in Salford College, you know, and then after that, they said, oh, you're really good at this. You shouldn't leave and just go into hospitality. You should go and study a bit more. So I went and did then what was HCIMA, which is like the Institute of Hospitality. You used to have a qualification then because there was no hospitality degree. So that was the hospitality degree, I suppose. So I went and did that, and that's how I got into catering. And I'd always had loads of jobs because, you know, I liked going out and clubbing and stuff from being quite young and the only way I was going to be able to afford to to do that was have all these jobs so I had loads of jobs in pubs and I worked in British home stores in the staff canteen on a Saturday where they used to give me a big bag of mints and go do something with that you know (laughs) you know really so I'd had loads of experience and just kept going and then went into hotels when I left so Right, right, right. So a couple of things I've picked up from in there. Actually, you and I are cut from very similar cloths because the way to get me to do something is somebody to tell me that I'll never be able to do it. That's not a message to anybody out there to test me on that, by the way. But um, uh, I had a very similar experience at the beginning of my, uh, not beginning of my schooling, in home economics. I was really, really, I loved food. I just didn't know if I wanted to do anything with it at the time. I wasn't a particularly great uh, home economist, I suppose. I didn't. I wasn't great at following recipes to the letter of the law. So when you're creating things that need you to do that, you you know the the, the end product perhaps wasn't the greatest. And I re- remember my home ec- uh, economics teacher telling me, "You will never do anything with food." And yeah, and do you know what? And and it absolutely spurred it didn't spur me on so much as like right well I'm gonna prove you wrong but I was like ah, I bet you I bloody can do something with food thanks very much yeah and I ended up ultimately I was I was well by the age of 23 I was running food and beverage for P&O cruises on one of their ships you know and okay. so and I don't want to go nay 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 but but there we yeah. are <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah but I think you've kind of it almost seems like you've broken down how you're going to get you want you've got this vision in your head at this point in time that I want to go and work for places like that because that's going to broaden my mind my horizons how am I going to get there and you've decided that this is going to be a route that will help you get into that line of work yeah exactly that and also I I wanted to go and move away from where I was and I thought hotels are all over the world aren't they so yeah. didn't move very far actually <laughs> <Fair> yeah. <one. laughs> 
Well, so from from college, where did you go? What happened next? So I I went to work in this hotel, privately owned group of three small hotels in the north. So not very far from Manchester, but um, and I worked in this. Got to hotel start somewhere in this place called Oldham. And then I had a bit of a disaster, really, my first job, because I was so excited. I came out of college and I'd done really well and all the rest of it. And all there were, really, were kind of big, you know, graduate training programmes with people like Hilton and things. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it just wasn't for me. It's a little bit too regimented. I thought, I don't want to go on a graduate training scheme. I've had all this experience. I've studied really hard. I've done quite well. I want to go and get a job. Anyway, I landed this job as a deputy manager in this hotel and I thought, oh, I've really done well here. This is brilliant. And I've been there for three months and I thought everything was going well. And because I was a girl, they gave me personnel, you know, which I knew nothing about. Really, apart from <laughs> I mean, it was quite funny. It was, there, were no, there were no female managers. I was it. And right. then the owners came. It was owned by some Eastern Europeans and the owners came to visit the hotel and they sort of looked at me and said, what's she doing here? And I said, oh, hello, and I'm Jane, and I'm the new deputy manager, and, you know, Miss bringing over with enthusiasm. And they went, oh, no, 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 no. We're not having any female managers. Literally. Really? It was a long time ago. And I said, what My do you mean? Goodness. And they were like, no, no, you could, do you want to go and transfer into reception? Literally, this happened to me. You know, you can go and be a reception manager. And I said, I don't want to be a reception manager. I want to be what I've studied to be. And they yeah. said, well, you have to go then. And my general manager was absolutely mortified. You can imagine he was just mortified. And I was really upset because I thought I'd done really well to get this job. I was flying along with it. And I just thought, you know what? There's no point being anywhere where people don't want you. And the, this guy rang round to everybody he knew and said, look, this awful thing's happened. Can you, you know, give this girl a job? And I got this really job in this really interesting place in a small kind of three-star hotel in Reading with this very eccentric older guy who just sort of took pity on me basically and took me in so I packed up my trunk literally and off I went you know down to Reading and yeah you must must be getting a nosebleed at this point in time well I've gone from this quite swanky you know four or five star hotel up there to this sort of two, three star hotel down there with 43 bedrooms, tiny place. And I I thought, well, I've just got to take this job because I can't go home with my tail between my legs. This just isn't going to work. So I went to work in this thing and um, (laughs) this is so embarrassing, but in the big place, they used to call me by my surname. They used to call me Miss Bourne. I was Miss Bourne then before I got married. Right. I didn't really want to be called that because nobody's ever called me that before. But I thought, oh, that's maybe that's what they call you if you're manager. And then I got to this new place and they all just started calling me by my first name. And I thought, oh, I've really been demoted now because I'm back to being playing, you know. <laughs> Not <laughs> okay. a member of the royal family anymore. Yeah, you know, it was, yeah, sad really. And this place was hilarious because it was next door to a homeless shelter, an Indian restaurant and a really rough, across the road from a really rough pub. Fabulous. So we were sort of, we had all sorts of interesting clientele coming in and there were, you know, fights outside and people used to come in and cause trouble in the bar and of course it was mugging theory used to go and sort it out. And actually it was the most brilliant experience, but it was sort of the least glamorous hotel job you could ever have. Bearing in mind, I'd stood outside the Midland going, I want to work there. Anyway, yeah, yeah. it was all very good for me. But the thing that then happened was that I'd, I'd fallen in love 
and weirdly I was only 22 we decided to get married and I just thought I'm never going to have this hotel career if I'm married it's just not going to work I thought you can do it now but probably in those days it would have just been really difficult he was in hotels as well and you know it was just too difficult so we decided very stupidly to this is probably the most stupid but the best thing I've ever done we decided we'd get married and move to London because that big London is where it's all at with no money no jobs nowhere to live so we arrive in London. I've got one friend here who says, oh, come and sleep on our floor. So bearing in mind, we were pretty much on our honeymoon. We'd only got married like two weeks before. Didn't have a, much of a honeymoon because we had no money. Um, went to live on, on this, literally on this girl's floor. At one stage, she had one room in a house of six rooms and one bathroom. And at one stage, there was her, her boyfriend, another friend who'd come back traveling from France, and me and my husband, Mike, all in this tiny room trying to live together in some sort of semblance of order while we looked for Interesting. Yeah. So anyway, eventually I got a job with Compass Group, who are a massive, you know, food services FM company. Yeah. Running the catering in a bank in the city. And I was thinking, oh, contract coaching, it's all egg and chips. And then I got there and it was amazing. <laughs> I mean, it was like the budgets were fabulous and the food was amazing. And the chefs were great and the dining rooms were beautiful and, and all the rest of it. So I thought, oh, well, that's all right then. So eventually I got a job, then he got a job. Then eventually, eventually, eventually we managed to rent the flat and, you know, go from there, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, it's kind of... There's a, a cracking, I'm a, a, a collector of elite cookbooks. So, um, you know, and I do, I don't necessarily do that to go and then emulate the recipe in my, you know, I can't follow a recipe um, in my um, kitchen. You just but read I, them, don't you? You read them. Yeah. I do it too. I've got them and I just sit and read them. Yeah. And there's a cracking one called uh, The Hidden Chefs, which I've got. And um, it's a, it's actually recipes from, lots of chefs from within the world of contract catering because effectively what you've got within the world of contract catering is Michelin quality food that you can never go to if you're just a guy on the street. Exactly. You know, and, and I, so it's actually a genius book because there's so many of these talented chefs that, that go into roles like that. And as you say, you know, perhaps the perception in some instances is that they're effectively doing school dinners and you know cafe style food and whilst they they do there is a simple offer generally it comes with all of these places there's also a really really elevated uh, offer that that comes as well yeah amazing and of course the hours are fantastic because I I went into this job doing eight till four Monday to Friday whereas before I've been doing 90 hours a week and no days off for weeks on end you know so it was like yeah. a part-time job it was fabulous <laughs> more money I mean, it was great <laughs> yeah yeah so how long were you with compass uh two years and I was I'm, a, I'm an operator by background I'm not an HR person actually despite being given this personnel role at the very beginning and I was really ambitious I wanted to you know be the MD or whatever and I'd just got a job. I'd literally just got a job as an area manager. So I was getting this area of my own of, I don't know, you've got 15 sites or something to look after. And and I've been sort of half doing it when people went on holiday and things anyway. And I thought, this is really good. And, you know, I was going to get company car. And I thought, oh, company car, this is great. And then the group HR director said, oh, I've got a project I want you to come and do. I want you to start this recruitment, this in-house recruitment business, temps, recruiting temps. 
for Compass in London. And I said, right. I don't know anything about recruitment and I certainly don't want to do that. And, and, you know, it was those days when they kind of looked at you with a hard stare and said, well, if you do it, it'll be really good for your career. And if you don't do it, it'll be really bad for your career. So yeah. I said, look, I'll put this area job on hold for six months. I'll come and set it up for you. And then I'm out of there because I absolutely don't want to run some temp recruitment business. I mean, I couldn't think of anything worse, to be honest. Anyway, yeah. I, got, I sort of got into it and started researching a bit. And the te- this is the 80s. The temp agencies were like the temps were treated appallingly. Some of them had grills, you know, like in an old fashioned bank, there was like a, a grill so you couldn't get to the person on the other side. Some of these yeah. agencies was like that. So you, you you weren't interacting really with the temps because it was too dangerous. And I was just right. so appalled. And I thought, how can you treat people like that? So our thing, so we set it up and we had a really nice waiting room with a Coca-Cola vending machine in it and TVs and nice chairs. And, you know, we didn't have any grills separating us from these scary people. And of course, everybody was absolutely lovely. And well, there are two, I think, that were not so great. But, you know, we just sort of treated people like human beings and gave them training and looked after them and were really nice to them. And, you know, what well, they did a really good job and we were really, really successful. Who'd have thought that doing all of these things would um would well, well it's mad to, mad to think that that's a USP right at the time yeah at the time I mean that was shocking wasn't it really just to be you know helpful and look after people and stuff yeah. so we did that and we ended up opening four branches in the end needless to say I stayed longer than six months because after well I'd sort of got going and thought oh this is great I'm not really into the recruitment but I'm certainly loving the setting up a small business and you know, all that comes with that. And then my boss at the time bought the agency from Compass because they'd had a change of board and they only wanted to have core stuff. And they were like, why have we got this recruitment business? Why don't we just outsource it? So she, very cannily, she came from a family of venture capitalists, so she had money. And she said, why don't I just buy it from, take it off your hands, Compass, but by the way, you can still be our client. And then she said to me, look, I don't really want to run this. You run it and I'll sort of, you know, be in the background and do all the big stuff so I thought you know what getting quite a good opportunity here to do something different and that's what I did so we grew it um I ended up staying quite a long time in the end um I just had a bit of a wake up one day and thought you know I'm making all this money for this family basically there's nothing wrong with that I was very well paid had a very nice car all that stuff but actually I just thought I should probably be doing something for me right So I tried to buy it out, which is a really dumb thing to do because you should never go into battle with people who know business and are in the VC world and are used to really tough negotiations. So I failed miserably to buy this business. And in the end, I had a tiny shareholding and I just persuaded them to buy back my shares. And off I went on my own to set up Purple Cubes. Really? So that that was, well, and the rest is history. There's nothing else happened since then. So thanks very much, Jane. (laughs) Now, well, the reason it's, I suppose the reason was because I'd seen all these people, because by now we weren't just doing recruitment temps, we were doing, you know, permanent placements and headhunting and all the good stuff. And I just kept seeing these people go into these jobs and then either the job wasn't as promised or the manager was a fool or, you know, all these things that went on that people would be back in six months going, well, it wasn't quite what I was expecting and can you find mm. me another job? And I thought there's just this massive gap in the market for someone to help companies retain their people because they were spending all this money on these recruitment fees, which was very nice for those of us in recruitment at the time. But then they were just letting them walk out the door. It was just crazy. 
So yeah. we decided I would start the UK's first people retention business. That's what we called it. And uh, I mean, nobody really talks about employee engagement, but there was the McKinsey War for Talent report came out in 1999. So this was about that time. And I just read this and thought, you know, it, it, it is a war for talent and I bet I can help companies do something about that. So I sort of wandered off and <laughs> set up in this, well, but there was me and another guy, actually. There was a guy who wanted to be a motivational speaker. And I said, well, you come and, you know, you go out and do training and be a motivational speaker and I'll do the other stuff because I'd had this idea for a piece of software by now, which I couldn't afford to do, of course, because it would have cost millions, but I did it anyway, because why not? Um, so <laughs> he was sort of out there learning stuff. Was, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> I'll tell There's, you the story. <laughs> that's, that's a massive leap had this idea about a piece of software which I couldn't afford but did it anyway okay how did that happen then right. so um what I wanted to do I mean originally I mean this isn't what our software is now but originally I wanted something that would automate the career dialogue so so like okay. an annual appraisal but that you could have some sort of dialogue that you know, happened and something happened with the outcomes. Because when I was in Compass, I mean, Compass is a great company. You get great training, all of that. You have your, and you used to, back in the day, have your annual appraisal. And then the papers used to go into someone's briefcase and bless them, they they were never, you know, they never saw the never light of day again. again. And nothing ever happened with it. And, and that was even in a really, really good company where they did things really well. And I thought, mm. God, you know, this whole thing is a bit broken. So I'd literally, on the piece of paper, written how this could work in an automated way. And I mean, I'm not a techie by background by any means. And I went to some software houses and said, what would it cost to build this? And they were like, oh, a million pounds or whatever, loads of money. And I just didn't have that money. And I think because I'd worked for venture capitalists and they, at one point on the board in the recruitment business was me and three people from the same family who were all investors. And I'd sort of had my fill of, going, oh, I've had an idea. Maybe we could do this and just being analysed to the 10th degree. And I thought, you know what, yeah, when I've got my own business, apart. I want to just be able to try stuff. And if it doesn't work, you know, fail fast and, and move on. If it doesn't work, we'll do something else. So I, I was really determined not to have any investment from outside, which probably if I had back then, I would have been sitting on an island by now, sunning myself with a cocktail. But anyway, <laughs> it was my choice not to do that. Um, so I didn't want to do it. And I was getting a bit fed up. And I said to my brother-in-law, oh, I'm getting really fed up. I want to do this software thing. And I just can't find anybody to help me. And he said, oh, go and talk to this man called Henry Stewart. And I said, who's Henry Stewart? And he used to run this company, he still runs a company, a very good company called Happy. And what Happy now does is all about workplace culture, a bit like us, but not in our, mainly for the public sector. But at the time, Henry at Happy had just got into um, e-learning and online learning, and that was quite new. Anyway, my brother-in-law said, oh, don't worry, just call him and say, Martin told me to call you and, you know. So I call him up and I go, Martin suddenly told me to call you. And he's like, yeah, all right then, come and see me. So I went to see him, had this really good meeting. He really got what I was trying to do. He was really, he's very eccentric, this man, wonderful, brilliant man. Um, and he was going, yeah, this is fantastic. You should do it, you should do it. And I was like, I can't afford to do it. And he said, do you know what? I really like you and I really like what you're trying to do. I'll, I'll just do it for you super cheap. You know, I'll, I'll get you a base product and you can take it from there. So I thought, this is great. So I say to my brother-in-law afterwards, thank you very much. That was a great introduction. How do you know 
oh no, I know, I said to Henry, how do you know my brother-in-law? And he said, I don't, I've never heard of him. So I said, what do you mean? He said, I've never heard of your brother-in-law, I don't know who he is at all. I said, why did you see me? And he said, oh, I don't know, he sounded quite nice. So then I say to my brother-in-law, well, thanks for the introduction, how do you know Henry? He went, oh, no, I've known him years. He's in PR, my brother-in-law, let's draw no conclusion from that. Um, <laughs> I said, I've known him for years, how exactly do you know him? And he went, oh, I don't know, I just know him. I said, no, no, you don't know him at all, do you? And he went, mm. well, no, but I saw him speak at a conference once and he sounded exactly like the sort of person who would have helped you. So, I mean, no, that's one of those mad fate things that yeah. I mean, would have got this thing off the ground if that hadn't happened. So it's just a weird one, isn't it? Anyway, so we managed to get some sort of basic product built, more or less. I mean, it was hilarious. It all kept going wrong, but... You know, I remember the first time we went to it to a client, they went, oh, can you show us the reports? And we were like, yeah, we haven't got any of those yet, have we? We were like, yeah, Not yeah, yet. it's just been worked on at the moment. Oh, God, reports. You know, I mean, it was so amateurish and embarrassingly awful. But, of course, the rest of the business was going all right. We were doing, we don't do loads and loads of traditional type training now, but back then we used to do a lot of that. Right. And so that was bringing in cash. I should probably go back one and mention that the day after I started this business was 9-11 so all the business Good that I've lined up on the books because you know I've been in recruitment I've known people I've told them what I was going to do they're like yeah really interesting come and do this for us all started to ring up and go oh can we just put that on hold and I, I remember sitting with my head in my hands thinking oh my god I've just started this business and I've got no nothing coming in and yeah Anyway, you just have to grit your teeth, don't you? Because I, you know, what is the choice? Yeah, totally. Walking, you know, two kids yeah. in the street, all that. Oh, oh my husband as well. Um, just a bit after I started my business, when oh, I'm going to start a business as well. I've had this opportunity. So six months after I started mine, he started his. So it's just mad in our house, really. You know. Yeah, but do you know what the, the you said it earlier on, right? Fail, fail fast, and you know, yeah. and take the learning from that quickly and evolve and move forward and uh, and you know all of these things if if the last two years haven't hasn't taught anybody about evolution and you know sideways thinking as opposed to blinkered thinking I mean what other opportunity are you ever going to have in your life to reassess direction Um, absolutely and and I do think it's probably made people braver because it pushes you out of your comfort zone it sounds as though you and I were out there anyway and 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 I always think you know when you've you've been there and you've not had much money and all the rest of it, you, you can only ever go up, can't you really? Whereas if you've yeah. always been in a position of being quite comfortable, it's quite hard to go backwards, I think. I mean, we talk about this all the time about our kids who've had a you know pretty privileged upbringing. And it's a bit shocking when they suddenly realise that actually you get out in the big world and it's not quite as easy as when you were at home, you know, so. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it strikes me as if you kind of went off plan a little bit. Uh, yeah. There was no Midland Hotel in there, in that story. I know, I know. <laughs> do you know what? It, I'm a massive believer in fate, and I do think that there are things all around you that you can choose to see and grasp, and there are things you can choose to, to not grasp. And, you know, all the way it's just gone a bit off piece. You know, if you'd have said to me at 20 what I'd be doing when I was 30, it would have been completely different. But I think that's... The wonderful thing, I mean, particularly about hospitality, because there are so many facets of it. I mean, I still think of myself as if I'm in hospitality. And I mean, I'm not really, you know, we work with mainly hospitality, but lots of different businesses. I mean, essentially, we're consulting and software. We're not 
hospitality business, but I still think as if as if I belong there, you know. Yeah, hospitality yeah, people, but... hospitality people, aren't they? Yeah, and I think we're the same. You know, I operate a recruitment company um, as my by day mm. tag, and um, I, I regard myself as being on the fringe of the industry. But in actual fact, you know, we're, I'm still. I still love this industry more than ever. Absolutely. You know, and uh, it doesn't mean just because I'm not operating something. I mean, oper- I'm operating a business, but I'm not operating a restaurant or a hotel or whatever. That doesn't mean that my opinion matters less exactly. in how we can make things better. And you're helping to make that industry better all the time. And I mean, that's what I love about my job is that, you know, if we can, you know, our company purpose is transformation, right? So if everybody we met, we left them just a little bit better than they were before in some way, and some a lot better, you know, then you're doing your job, aren't you? Because it's all about moving forward, really. So, yeah. 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 And, you know, it's it's something I think, uh, uh, and especially you mentioned in 1999, there was a war for talent. I'm using the bunny rabbit ears a lot today, aren't I? No, I do that too. Yeah. But here we are in... 2022 and you could argue that we're not not much has changed in that time we're still we're in a situation whereby people today think they've just coined this phrase don't they i remember somebody said to me with great aplomb the other day you know there's a war for talent as if he'd made it up and i thought yeah i think we've been having that for 30 years really yeah but you know what i also when when it comes to coming up with phrases like that whenever it is or whoever it is that comes out with it at the time things like that kind of do my head in a little bit because it's such negative language around what we're in at the moment. Actually, we have the greatest opportunity in the history of the industry, probably, to draw a line in the sand and be able to really, really push forward with, you know, just wonderful practice across all businesses. And I know that's whimsical, but um, but I believe... It's absolutely true, and I'm going to comment on that. So an opportunity to draw a line in the sand and to make things better. And I think it's a huge silver lining of the whole mess of the last two years. And, you know, some people are really embracing this and really changing the businesses. It's amazing. Yeah, and that's the thing. It needs uh, an awful lot of people to do a lot of things and the or actually a lot of people to do little things, really. That's probably the reality. And what I've definitely seen a mixed response in the sense that Obviously, people have been so anxious and keen to get their businesses back open again that it's just been about, right, hit the ground running, we'll worry about everything else later. Yeah, I think that's right. And there's a lot of sort of sacrificial stuff going on at the moment when people are going, yeah, I feel terrible, but I'm just going to battle on through and it'll be fine and we'll get there without any actual light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm constantly saying to people, you've just got to make yourselves pull back, even though it's really hard pull yeah. back and work out how you're going to make the light at the end of the tunnel because you know people were overwhelmed when they came back to work and they still are and unless you can do everything to to make them feel okay it's just gonna you know they're all gonna implode explode whatever yeah so, yeah. absolutely yeah. going back to i mean you said that you don't do an awful lot of kind of classroomy training type things anymore but but just give us a snapshot of what does yeah. Proper cube now look like so, so a third of the business is consulting and that's anything to do with workplace culture so if you imagine that people put vast amounts of money into recruitment nothing wrong with that both been there 
um, and less into retention. They put vast amounts of money into training, but what they don't sometimes do is get the fundamentals right. So for instance, the company's culture. So if you've got a really negative, toxic culture, you could you know, recruit all the great people in the world and train them a hundred times, but you're not going to get the best out of them and they're probably going to leave if you've got a terrible culture. Ditto if your leaders are not leading in a contemporary, you know, positive way. Still, you know, there's a, I think the the pandemic will really cut off command and control leadership for a lot of people because people aren't just going to be micromanaged anymore. They've all proved that they could sit at home and work perfectly well and possibly better and all the rest of it. So I think, you know, contemporary leadership or just a bit of a parity of leadership, because I know lots of people say, oh, I had this great manager and then I got promoted and I worked for another manager and they were terrible and I went back five steps. So, so we do a lot around communication, leadership, employer brand, culture, just making sure that people have got the right tools. So for instance, we went into one business where they have 14 different people apps for their people to use for wow. one thing or another and nothing integrated. So we've done loads of work over the past few years just about making sure that people have got tools that talk to each other, consumer-grade tech, they have all these big clunky things. So a third of it is consulting around that, and the two-thirds is our tech business, which is mainly our talent toolbox product, which is like a talent management dialogue, driving, reviews, set goals, monitor goals. Most of it is about getting really good metrics so you can know exactly what's going on and plan for the future. And then yeah. we've got some other little side products, like we've got a well-being tool and various other things like that. And the right. software side sort of informs the consulting and the consulting informs the software. So we're a bit weird when it comes to software companies because we've got no outside investors. So we're not under any pressure to sell tons of them. And in fact, we only take on we only take on maximum 12 clients a year, which is not loads, but that's because we want to have people that we get under the skin of their businesses. We can work with them properly and we'll work with them for years. So typically yeah. we're not a quick fix. We're, I mean, I've got clients that have worked with us for 20 years and then there are other people will do a project, a consulting project. They might not talk to us again for ages, but, you know, most of our clients are um, what we call affinity clients, people that we work with in a very close way where, you know, we give them advice, we're always there for them, but they use our products and services, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and well, I mean, evolution at its finest because, you know, that's not what you actually started out as, but look at what you've become. Well, exactly. I mean, the well-being stuff we do, when you do it because it was pandemic, we thought, oh, let's make a well-being app for everybody. You know, just because, why not? To keep my guys yeah. really, didn't I? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, I mentioned at the top of the, the show that you are also a speaker and best-selling author. Now, little story behind the books, because you and I met well, five or six years ago or something like that. It was a really lovely meeting, and I... I always remembered it fondly, especially when you handed me a copy of your book at the end, which at the point I didn't know that you'd written the book. And the title of that was uh, It's Never Okay to Kiss the Interviewer. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, that stuck with me forever because it's one, it's a great title for a book or certainly it's a great title for anything really to intrigue people as to, oh, there sounds like there's a story here. Is there a story around anybody ever kissing the interviewer that led yeah, you down that path? absolutely is. So that was my second book. My first book, I never set out to get a book published. I'm not that person, honestly. 
Um, right. But I, when the company was coming up to 10 years old, I thought, God, we've amassed all this information and stories and all this stuff. So I thought I'm going to write them into a book, which would be A, really good for any new people that we were taking on as a bit of a super onboarding. But also we thought because we were 10 years old, we we're going to have this 10-year party. Um, we could give to all our lovely law clients who were going to come to this beautiful party at the Haymarket Hotel, then we'd give them this book. So I write this book and the person who was running marketing at the time said, hey, it's really good this, you should get it published. And I was like, oh God, no, I can't be bothered. And all those rejections and oh, no, 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 no. Anyway, unbeknown to me, she sent it off to a few publishers and one of them picked it up. So the first book was called Purple Your People. And it was basically how to be a great place to work fine right very simple I mean my books are very they're not studious academic books they're very practical loads of stories and stuff so I wrote this book and it did all right and the publisher said well could you write the other side of it how to be a great employee and I thought oh sigh I'm far too busy to do all this really but anyway <laughs> as luck would have it about two weeks later I'm, I'm a visiting fellow at Oxford Brooks University I went to do um, a talk to the master's students about employability. And this man, quite a posh, well-spoken, obviously from a very good family, this guy put his hand up. He's not a stupid man by any means. He's on a master's degree all the way. He put his hand up and said, if the interviewer is a lady, is it okay to give her a kiss? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. And I mean, I was so taken aback. There was a bit of a sharp intake of breath from all the girls in the room. And I just said, absolutely not, under no circumstances. You know, you give her a firm handshake as, as you would with a man, and off yep. you go. And I just thought, it was because they said not long before you should write this book, and I just thought, I'm going to write that book now. Because if, if somebody likes that, doesn't know that, what do less privileged people not know about employability and the yeah. job? So then I was going to call it How Not to Hate Your Job, which is two negatives in one sentence. Don't ask me why I thought that, because I'm not a negative person. Anyway, the publisher said, no, no, no. I love the interviewer story. We'll call it. It's never okay to kiss the interviewer. So that's Very good. I'm yeah, absolutely. Five years later, I thought I'd better update the first book and then ended up writing a completely different book called The People Formula. So, you know... There you go. Yeah, and what and the what do they say when you're writing a book? That they, they get you to write out avatars as to who this book's for and all of that sort of thing. And and a lot of the time, and I've, I've had many a book idea. And in fact, I am writing a book at, at the moment uh, on the side. But the um, a lot of it is centers around uh, who is this book for. And when I went into that process, it was for me. I was writing the book for me. It's, this is a book that I would have loved to have had. Yeah. At the beginning of my, you know, not not even beginning of career, kind of beginning of accepting that now I'm going out into the world on my own, and you know, with these tools, then you know that that's yeah, I would find that very very useful. But I said when I was writing this avatar, I was like, but it just feels there has to be. I've run this idea through my head, and maybe it's too simple. It says yes, but you're writing it for somebody else. You're not writing it for you. So that is a case in point. If people are making those kind of mistakes that they need some guidance then yeah, yeah you you've, you just never know where where the knowledge knowledge bar is do you no exactly I mean, we interviewed this guy once who 
literally had gone on about um you know what we were saying what do you do in your spare time and he's like oh I'm, I'm studious I'm very studious you know I'm always studying and always in the library and you know and and I was like, well, what do you do for fun? Don't you go out and stuff? And he's like, oh, well, you know, I don't have much time for that. And it was really funny because we'd looked at his Twitter and it had said something like, oh, my God, got off my face last night on the way for an interview. <laughs> and it was our interview. Just like, don't do stupid things like that. <laughs> Either be really honest and say, well, I love a good time, but I work really hard when I'm there. Or don't put it on your Twitter, you know? Yeah, it's just absolutely. Stuff like that. So, yeah. That's what it's also it's a really interesting point though to write a book from that perspective as well because yeah. a lot of uh, you know there's a lot of content out there on how to you know make sure that your workplace is you know perfect and wonderful and all of that sort of stuff but nobody actually really talks about that it's kind of an accepted knowledge that you'll be getting all of this stuff drip fed to you through school and your careers advisors and all of that but the reality is is that the real world is a very different ballgame absolutely right and I mentor loads of young people not all at once but I mean over the years I've mentored loads of young people and I'm always astounded by how little of that they pick up it's not their fault I mean why would you know yeah they just don't know I mean I get loads of them they're like oh I don't know how to get a job and stuff and you look at the CV's terrible I mean you must see them all the time and it's yeah, how, yeah. Many, how many times not, they not just them. people starting out by the way no no <laughs> I mean, I suppose mostly now it's online applications, isn't it? But some of the CVs I see and I think, oh, my God, what did you write that for? You know, it's like bizarre. Yeah. But people, people like us, I think we're quite good at putting ourselves in other people's shoes. And that's what makes it easier to write the books. Because they're not you. But I think there's a certain skill to putting yourself in that person's position and thinking about it from their perspective. And I know you do that because I've met you a few times now. And, and it's that thing. So maybe that helps us to write these simple but effective books. Who knows? Well, it's not written yeah. yet, so it might not be effective ever. Um, but anyway, sure one step one sure step at a time. One step yeah. at a time. Uh, conscious of time a little bit, but... Um, oh, yeah, I know, it's flying by, isn't it? A question I like to ask everybody, you've kind of covered a few points in this, I think, but... What would be your top three reasons why somebody should join hospitality? Yeah, uh, okay. First of all, you can learn amazing skills. And I think we should have national service in hospitality. So everybody has to do a year or something in hospitality because you learn things in hospitality that you would never learn anywhere else. And I, I think that's what's wrong with the world, actually because you learn resilience, teamwork, how to deal with people, how to stand up for yourself, you know, all those things, how to be really organised, how to deliver on your promises. You know, the standards in hospitality in terms of the skill set are so high that you just don't get that anywhere else. And, I mean, I meet bankers who have not got the organisation and social skills of a, you know, a a starting out person who's a server or something, you know. it's So skills for a start. Two, I think sky's the limit. If you're good and you're determined and you want to work hard, you could go anywhere with it, literally anywhere. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I always remember there was a salary survey years ago and it said the average salary of a five-star general manager in Park Lane was 300000 a year or something. And I thought, do you know what? People don't realise that, do they? No, like, that sort of I mean, stuff never so really gets out, that. does it? No. So, I mean, there's that stuff. And then I guess just the people and the food. You know, if you love food, I love food, you love food. If you love food and you really like people, what a perfect industry to be surrounded by 
great people and we all look after ourselves don't we in hospitality I had yeah. I had a very beautiful lunch at the Beverly Hills Hotel last week with a client so it's this is not on me but I had this lovely lunch with a client from London and we were catching up and at the and the chef came out the executive chef came out say hello and all that and then nothing to do with me all to do with my client and then at the end when we came to bill to do the bill they said oh that's okay it's been taken care of and you know that's I mean we would never have gone if we thought it was a free lunch because we're not those people but you know that's yeah. just like hospitality just wants to look after its own and there's nothing like it I love that not just here, here. Love, but it's the generosity of spirit is fantastic totally and do you know what I, I was at the uh the back to the floor event on uh Friday evening yeah, um great, at the royal like oh my god it's my first ever experience of it and I feel like I just want to shout about it forever because um, the the unity in the room was yeah. phenomenal. The it was it was lots of serious hospitalitarians letting their hair down, yes. uh, you know, and doing something really good. And by God, that I walked away from that feeling well, one feeling knowing that I'd have a hangover the next day, <laughs> but um, but two, I just it's, it's things like that that really restore faith and confidence that oh, we've yeah. got such a wonderful group of people stewarding this industry at the moment um let's let's use that let's absolutely shout about how good it is for for all to hear absolutely it's it's marvelous and i'm sorry i missed that event actually because it looks amazing and i get seeing it coming up on social media thinking they're having such a good time there yeah Yeah. i'll let you off i think you're in los angeles so that'd have been an expensive reason to come back yeah it would have been a bit pushing the boat wouldn't it i know but yeah, yeah, it's a great industry and people need to know that for sure. Absolutely. Final question before you go. Actually, final two questions before you go. And yeah. then I'll say three questions, four questions, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but um, I know you've given us a couple of stories already. Are, are, are we missing any? Are there any? I feel like you are such a stories-based lady. Are we leaving any gems out there um, that should a, be heard? I've got a bit of a naughty one, so you can decide whether you edit it out or not. Oh, no, no, definitely not. When I got the job running this uh, catering in this very swanky, it was a Scandinavian bank. And as I said, it was, you know, loaded. The first day I got there, there were all these Porsches lined outside. And I thought, oh, these are nice swanky cars. I wonder what they're doing there. And they were like the house cars that people would just borrow. And it was like that. Yeah. Right. I mean, I couldn't borrow them because I was catering, obviously. Anyway, um, but I had I had this. Uh, so the relationship is you work for Compass, but then you you report into also a client on site who's typically the head of FM or something. And I had the, the client, you know, and I used to go up for my weekly meeting with him and all this and we used to get on very well. Anyway, one time I was summoned on a not on a day when I'd normally go and see him. So I was summoned up there and he, he was very you know straight laced and sat there looking at me and he said oh, we've got a serious problem here and I said oh god you know what's gone on and and I always think it's me don't ask me why I always think oh god what have I done you know what inadvertent clangor have I dropped now yeah yeah anyway he same. said well he said I was walking through the um through the kitchen last night and I heard um from the dry store I heard whoops and moans of a sexual nature like how I kept my straight, my face straight. So I was saying, okay, could you tell who it might have been? And he said, well, it was two men. So he was more outraged that it was two men than that it was the whoops and the moans of the sexual <laughs> right. nature. And I said, well, what would 
would you like me to do about it? And he said, well, I want you to get rid of those people. And I said, well, we don't know who they are. And he said, well, I need you to find out who they are. And then I want them gone. And in my head, I sort of knew who I thought it probably was. But of course, you know. So this gives me a dilemma because I'm thinking I've got to find out who these people are. They obviously shouldn't have been doing that in the dry store, should they? And certainly not making a bit of a noise while the guy was walking past. No. Anyway, it transpired upon a bit of investigation that it was a sous chef and a commie chef having a little experience off the uh, off the record. And making up their own recipes. Yes, very, yes, yes. Uh, very. <laughs> anyway, um, I did persuade them that perhaps it would be a good idea for them to look on the vacancy list that was there at the moment, you know, and perhaps apply for some jobs somewhere else. So I was able to sort of move them on into no lesser job. And then, right. you know, so I didn't want to sack them. I mean, stuff happens, doesn't it, really? I know you shouldn't be doing that, just... sitting on a bag of flour or whatever. But, you know, I thought I, I'm not one for ruining people's careers because they make a stupid mistake because everybody's made a stupid mistake. And absolutely you know, a little bit of leeway there. So I was able to move on and move them on and keep the client happy and, and all the rest of it. But that was a funny story. And then the other one from that time was um, there was a very austere, elegant, beautiful, older head of the restaurant. We, we had all these directors' dining rooms and she was head of all the dining rooms. And bear in mind, there were no mobile phones then. So she used to come into my tiny little office in the afternoon, supposedly to run her catalogue, right, like a clothing catalogue. Okay. And I, I sort of used to go out of the office while she was doing it because it was so small, there was no room. And I thought, it's all right, I don't mind her using the phone, you know, I'm going to sit out on one of the restaurant tables, do my paperwork, whatever. But she kept doing all these things and everything she bought was either black or brown or anything she sold was black or brown and only ever in a size 12 or a size 14. And I kept thinking, why is this woman buying all these trousers or whatever in a size 12, size 14, black or brown? Turned out she was dealing drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah goodness yeah. yeah I said to I said to my assistant manager what is she doing and he went don't you know what she's doing and I said no I mean I must be some sort of innocent person or something or was then and she was because like a 12 being a half of whatever they did them in I don't know half an ounce I don't know quarter so I, I thought I, it was a quarter I'd love no, to be able to add anything <laughs> yeah and I mean this is in this this swanky bank and I mean, you just wouldn't have known. I mean, she was like so scary, this woman. Um, so I had to sort of put a stop to that, which was really, I mean, I really, yeah, really young, yeah. really young. And I mean, I just said to a lot, I know what you're doing. And if you don't stop, I'll have to do something about it. So go and find another phone to do your business and certainly do not bring anything into here. So yeah, so there was yeah. also it was like Sodom and Gomorrah. There was all these things going on. And there was me all innocent turning up, just got married and, you know, thinking, oh, my God, what have I come to? That London, you know, that London. That, that London, yeah. But yeah. You know, the um, these things happen and they will always happen, won't they? I mean, at the, at the end of the day, you made the uh, reference to it earlier on in the conversation about the that it teaches you resilience. It teaches you how to deal with problems. And, you know, and, and, and I think... It, Equally, it sounds like the way you dealt with it is exactly, you know, kind of with the lightest touch. It's not about just being aggressive and saying, right, get out or whatever. You know, the people do make stupid errors and yeah, sometimes I mean, 
the benefit maybe, of the doubt works. Maybe I'm too nice, but actually nobody really thinks I'm too nice. I don't think. I don't know. I, I just see. I just see see it as it is, and it's happening. I'm not very emotional about stuff like that. I'm not outraged. I just think, just stop it. Yeah, this is an inconvenience. But I don't want to make it sound like hospitality is a hotbed of sex and drugs. But, <laughs> I mean, it is part of life, isn't it? And yeah. you know, I'd like to think that people are a bit less obvious about it these days. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah. Well, um, what's the uh, what's in store for for Purple Cubed for the for the next oh, year yeah. and beyond? Uh, good, actually. Um, so obviously, the last two years have been very up and down for us. Um, but it we didn't, have... it didn't. It didn't happen. There was no, no the last two years. No. But I mean, the beauty of it is, you know, I don't think we lost a client. I think that's right to say. You know, so I think people kept in there with us, and you know, and some have come back with a vengeance, which is great. Um, yep. We have just completely rewritten our our software again because obviously we've had this product for so long that we have to keep reinventing it, or it just wouldn't live. Yeah. I like to think we're ahead of the game in this stuff and we always know the next big thing. So we're about to do the next big thing, which all will be revealed in July. So that's good. Um, yeah. And uh, during the pandemic, I gave all the people who work there, there's only 12 of us, um, they've all got shares, actual shares, not share options. So um, we're more of like a cooperative now in a way. So that's yeah. different for us. And so we're making decisions in a different way. And actually, it's really great. And it means I can step back and spend a month in LA, you know, um, you know, I'm still, yep. in touch. I'm still doing stuff. I'm still seeing clients, but I don't have to be physically there. That's another silver lining of the pandemic for me, actually. Um, so Joe, my MD is absolutely, if you've met her, she's fabulous. She yep. does everything. I basically do as I'm told now, you know, they go, write this, think about that, work that out, go and talk to that person. And I love that. Actually, it's great. Great, yeah. Well, and all of the the years of driving, uh, I suppose sometimes it's nice to be a passenger, isn't it? Yeah, you know. I mean, it's been years and years of that, and actually, it's. I never thought that I'd get to a place where I could work for my people rather than them working for me, and it would be yeah. so completely equitable and great. So, I recommend that to any founders out there who are always interfering in their businesses. Yeah, <laughs> you've got to get the right people, obviously, and you've got to retain them. And thank God we're really good at retaining our people, but have to be really. But yeah, I mean, it's great actually. Yeah, that's a fair point, actually. Uh, yeah, if you're not good at retaining your people, then then I mean, it's like that near where I live. There's a guy who does driveways for a living, and his driveway is shocking. <laughs> he just yeah. never gets round to doing it. I think he's too yeah, busy yeah. out doing other driveways. But yeah. you know, you just think to yourself, sort your own driveway out because. No, I know. Well, I mean, we've got to practice what you preach. I mean, Joe and I worked Absolutely. out the other day, we haven't had to replace anybody for seven years. Really? You know, we've wow. We've extra positions, but we've never replaced anybody for seven years, which touch wood is good going, actually. Yeah, for sure. No, well, you know, I, I, uh, I've met you a couple of times now. I met Joe at uh, the Rooms event that we did a few weeks back. She seems in the mould, very grounded, uh, very passionate about what she does. Yeah. In actual fact, I'm having a coffee with her in a couple of weeks as well. Oh, great. Just, oh, well, just, to, just to meet her properly and uh, and stuff. But uh, no, I salute you guys and what you're doing. And I was privileged enough to to hear you talk at our event uh, a couple of weeks back as well. The first time that I'd ever heard you do anything like that. You absolutely know your onions and you, you talk about it with such ease and passion. So uh, you're clearly doing something you were meant to do, no doubt. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think I probably am, yeah. Bless you.
Great stuff. All right. Well, I'll let you go and enjoy the fruits of LA and um, uh, enjoy however long it is you've got left there. And um, thank you very much for sharing your story. Well, thank you so much for asking. It's been lovely. Wonderful. Take care, Jane. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. And there we have it. Isn't Jane superb and what an absolute warrior she is for hospitality? I'm very grateful to her for taking time out of her break to chat to us. And Jane's story is not the only thing we've got for you this week, as we'll be bringing you a cheeky bonus episode on Friday at 8pm. Look out for that. But in the meantime, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>